everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, I'm Hub, and I hope you guys are doing okay. It's been a weird week, man. Right now, it is downright surreal outside. It's feeling more than a little apocalyptic right now. It, coupled with horrifying news stories, I am in a region that is surrounded by wildfire, and so ash is literally falling from the sky like flurries of snow, and it is very surreal. Fortunately, in trying times like these, social media is there to remind us of what's really important. I received a reminder from Facebook recently about something that I was angry about four years ago today, and you know what? I'm still actually mad about it. I know some have criticized me before for using this podcast as a political platform, but I feel I have a larger voice than some right now, and I feel like it's my duty to use it to speak truth to power. So, what the fuck, Pepperidge Farms? You've got soft-baked cookies. That means you have the technology. Why the fuck don't you just soft-bake all of your cookies? I mean, I'll put up with that crumbly cookie crap from a Milano, but if I'm honest with myself, that's really just for nostalgia. They're not that delicious. You think I'm going to put up with that crumbly-ass bullshit from a fucking Sausalito or a Montauk? Fuck you, Pepperidge Farm. <sighs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to get so worked up, but there are things that I believe in, and I think it's important to share that with you. I mean, with great power comes great responsibility. So if you'd like to hear more hot takes like that, I got some good news for you. I mentioned it last week, but I'm going to push it again. I'm going to be at Rose City Comic Convention next week. I'm going to be on a panel with Jay and Miles from Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, and I'm really excited about it. Me and Corey are going to be joining them for a discussion about deep dives into comic continuity, and I would love it if any of you were able to attend. It'd be great to see you there. It's going to be Sunday at the Rose City Comic Convention at 2.30. The panel is, I believe, called Devils in the Details. And it should be a lot of fun, and I'd love to get to see some of you. And if you guys are there, you should also go on Saturday to check out Jay and Miles' live recording of what sounds like an awesome episode of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men. I'm really hoping I'm going to be able to make it to that as well. So yeah, I'll see you guys soon. And tell you what, without any further ado, let's... Uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Jess S. The Hulk almost died, but it was a near miss. Steve is a jerk. Here's the synopsis. Thanks, Jess. Concise and accurate. Well played. Defenders, number 17, November 1974. Power Play. Written by Len Wein, drotted by Sal Buscema, with inks by Dan Green. Defensive lineup, Valkyrie, Doctor Strange, The Incredible Hulk, Nighthawk, and Luke Cage, Power Man. Previously in The Defenders, billionaire bird enthusiast and burglar Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, decided to stop stealing shit and start superheroing as a member of our titular non-team. This is great news to Doctor Strange, because Namor, Hulk, and Valkyrie all announced that they were quitting The Defenders. Oh, no! Only Val never left, and Hulk came right back. Hooray! Then Val announced that she was going to leave after all to embark on a sojourn of self-discovery. Oh, no! 
Her new non-teammate, Nighthawk, bought her a private riding academy where the sword-slinging Scandinavian superheroine could stable her magical flying horse while she was off getting her shit together. Valkyrie stuck around for one last adventure, which culminated in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants being turned into adorable evil little babies. Gadzooks! With appropriate pet care now procured, is our mighty mythological maiden finally free to find herself? How will the recently reformed supervillain Nighthawk seek to cement his superhero status? And has Marvel Comics contacted me yet to write that Brotherhood of Evil Mutants Muppet Babies crossover I proposed? Stay tuned to find out! Okay, so... Yup, and she suspects that a good place to start looking for herself might be Vermont. By emulating Hawkeye and sexually harassing one of his new non-teammates. And, tragically, not yet. Although if they'd like to, please contact me at ttwasteland at gmail.com. I got ideas. The Defenders are hanging out at the private riding academy that Nighthawk bought for Valkyrie on a whim a couple of issues ago. Must be nice. Despite having been told repeatedly that Aragorn, the flying horse who necessitated the ostentatious real estate purchase in the first place, will only allow himself to be ridden by Valkyrie, Kyle has decided to give it a try anyways. It's almost as though the wealthy young man with poor impulse control doesn't understand the importance of consent. Much to the delight of his non-teammates who have gathered to watch the bird-beaked billionaire burglar turned B-minus Batman's attempts at bronco-busting, Kyle fails spectacularly and is quickly thrown from Aragorn's back. Hooray! A few minutes later, Valkyrie changes into a stylish civilian outfit and announces that she is finally ready to depart the Defenders on her quest for personal enlightenment. As a parting gift, Steve Strange uses a spell to turn her magic sword dragon fang invisible so as not to attract undue attention, which on one hand is a nice gesture, but on the other hand, it kind of seems like carrying around a razor-sharp magical sword that you can't see is a good way to not have another hand. He also tells her that he put a few other twists on the enchantment, which he thinks will prove helpful. What are these amazing mystical bonus features? He doesn't say and she doesn't ask. It's as though an exchange between Q and James Bond went, These cufflinks aren't just regular cufflinks. Cool! Bye! Val goes to kiss each of her non-teammates on the cheek and say goodbye. She tells Hulk she'll miss him most of all, which would seem rude seeing as Kyle and Steve are standing right there, but seeing as how she just met Kyle and Steve doesn't hear what she says even when she's talking directly to him, I'm gonna let it slide. Especially seeing as what happens next. Remember what I said about Kyle potentially not understanding the importance of consent? Yeah, well... When Val kisses him on the cheek and tells him that she doesn't know him very well, but he seems like a nice man, he responds by saying he wants a better kiss than that, grabbing her and kind of jamming his tongue down her throat. Damn it, Kyle! Just because you bought the lady a riding academy doesn't mean she owes you smooches. Not cool. We just got rid of one Hawkeye, we don't need another one. I was kind of hoping Val would respond by finding out if one of Dragon Fang's new special features was the ability to slice through entitled cosplaying sexual harassers like they were steamrollers, but unfortunately, she graciously bids the Defenders goodbye and heads off to Vermont. Hulk is pretty bummed out that Val's gone. Steve attempts to console the grieving green Goliath, but Hulk ain't having any of that. He blames the condescending conjurer for Val's departure and proceeds to do what Hulk does best. Smash? Display a charming fondness for baked beans? Sadly, no. The activity that Hulk does best I'm referring to is stomping off angrily and quitting the Defenders. Aww. Again? 
Being new to the non-team, Nighthawk doesn't realize that Hulk's quitting the team usually lasts about as long as a politician's promise and means about as much. The super-rich smooch-stealer gets seriously sulky and soliloquizes that since he joined, Namor, Val, and the Hulk have all quit the team. Steve tells him to chill out and that everything's going to be okay. After all, he wouldn't want to set a precedent for privileged white dudes taking responsibility for the consequences of their behavior. Kyle, however, refuses to be placated. See, unbeknownst to the rest of the non-team, which I guess at this point is just Steve, Kyle went ahead and spent a buttload of money to turn his impulsively purchased equestrian academy into a state-of-the-art secret headquarters for the Defenders. Aww, the rich kid bought a fancy treehouse and now nobody wants to play with him. Poor fella. He even bought an enormous chair made out of solid adamantium for the Hulk to sit in. Um, about that. The amount of adamantium in Wolverine's skeleton, about 100 pounds, is worth approximately $500 million. Assuming this gargantuan office chair only has three times the mass of a five-foot-three man's bones, that chair carries a minimum price tag of $1.5 billion. And it doesn't even look remotely comfortable. What the actual fuck, Kyle? Do you know how many things you actually need you could have purchased for the price of that uncomfortable giant chair? Things like, I don't know, therapy? Legal fees for your sexual harassment suits? An HR department? Anyway, Kyle is interrupted from his lamentation of regrettable decisions in the field of home furnishing purchases by a phone call. The call's from Nighthawk's long-suffering financial affairs manager, Pennysworth. Pennysworth suggests that his eccentric absentee employer turn on the television as there is breaking news of a story that concerns his financial holdings. After instructing Steve how to navigate the labyrinth of his elaborate media system, the two remaining defenders settle in to watch some TV news. Today's top story is that a group of supervillains called the Wrecking Crew has already destroyed one downtown high-rise building and is threatening to destroy another unless they receive the astronomical sum of $10 million by 8 p.m., an hour that is rapidly approaching. Oh, shit! Ten million dollars? Why, that's nearly one-eighth of Nighthawk's weekly credenza budget. Why, he'd probably have to rummage around in the cushions of his vibranium sofa for like five whole minutes to come up with that kind of scratch. At the stroke of eight, a relieved news reporter informs his audience that the crisis has passed, and the threats of property damage were clearly just a bluff. Hooray! Then the building collapses into a heap of rubble. Whoops. Maybe should have held off on delivering that good news, buddy. A booming voice announces to the assembled onlookers and media representatives that unless the wrecking crew receives $25 million by dawn, then at sunset, they will destroy another building. Bummer. Nighthawk turns off the TV and says to Pennysworth, So, yeah, that sucks and all, but explain to me the part where I give a shit. Wow, dude, you are just nailing this superhero thing. Top marks, buddy. Pennysworth informs the compassionate crime fighter that both of the buildings that had been destroyed had been owned by Richmond Enterprises, Kyle's company. Oh, snap! Looks like you're going to have to hold off on buying that Uru metal end table you had your eye on. Pennysworth goes on to inform the avian accoutrement aficionado that the only other building Richmond Enterprises still owns is under construction, but he has taken steps to see that the construction site goes unmolested by the Wrecking Crew. And just who is this Wrecking Crew? Well, the Wrecking Crew 
was a loose-knit circle of top studio musicians whose services were constantly in demand during their heyday in the 1960s and early 1970s. No, wait, that's the other The Wrecking Crew. This The Wrecking Crew was a 1968 film in which Dean Martin played a swingin' super spy named Matt Helm. No, wait, that's the other, other The Wrecking Crew. This The Wrecking Crew is a group of criminals who were granted godlike construction equipment-themed powers when they all held onto a magic crowbar that got struck by lightning. No, really, that's who this The Wrecking Crew is. Kyle figures that he and Doctor Strange better head on over to that construction site and get their thwart on, or else he's never going to be able to buy that, uh, Dargonite Shifferobe? The duo of decorum-deficient defenders take to the skies, and soon thereafter arrive at their destination and start poking around. Nighthawk notices aloud to himself that he's surprised at the apparent lack of security, seeing as how Pennysworth told him he had hired someone to guard the place. Suddenly... A shadowy figure grabs both Strange and Nighthawk by their respective capes and slams them headfirst into a slab of concrete. Okay, I know I shouldn't, seeing as they're the protagonists and all, but... Hooray! It turns out the protection Pennysworth procured was none other than... Power Man Luke Cage, the hero for hire himself. Sweet Christmas! Double hooray! Luke Cage is the fucking best! For some reason... Cage is suspicious of the elaborate costumed men, one of whom is wearing a mask and was very recently a notorious burglar, sneaking onto the job site he had been hired to protect. He continues to pummel the two heroes while spouting hilariously inauthentic slang. What? A chance encounter between superhero that leads to a misunderstanding that results in a fight? No way! That's the craziest and least cliched thing I've ever heard! Nonetheless, this entirely novel and unprecedented interaction does indeed lead to a real Donnybrook. Luke Cage smacks Steve and Kyle around for a bit. Kyle reveals that, one time, he was involved in an experiment and fell into some science. Ever since that fateful day, whenever the moon is out, he now has the strength of two strong men. Wow. That is like the lamest version of a werewolf I have ever heard of. Luke Cage is about as impressed by the avian adventurer's origin as I was, and continues to smack Kyle around. Then he calls Doctor Strange Mr. Mustache, and knocks him around for a little while as well. Hooray! Finally, Steve gets tired of the whole misunderstanding malarkey, and uses his mystic might to jam Power Man inside one of those sorcerous bubbles that are all the rage. Once the hero for hire is safely sealed inside that weird and eldritch terrarium, Steve explains that he and Nighthawk are also working on behalf of Richmond Enterprises to ensure the safety of the property. Whew. Well, I'm glad that's all worked out. Only, bad job, everybody. No sooner does Strange finish his exposition than the entire building all three heroes were so keen on preserving collapses all around them. Whoopsie. Strange throws a magical shield up to protect the three recently tussling titans from falling detritus, but the property itself is kaput. The quarreling crime fighters find themselves confronted by a quartet of construction equipment wielding costumed creeps. That's right, it's the Wrecking Crew. The, the third one from before, not the Musicians or the Dean Martin movie. Although each of those Wrecking Crews is pretty great in their own right. To be continued. I guess that Plandanium 
Davenport Kyle had on layaway. We'll have to wait for next month. And joining us once again is my good for many things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I'm well, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. So, what'd you think? I thought this was a lot of fun. It felt really short after the giant-sized one, and very concise. Yes, uh, after both the giant-sized one and, frankly, after the Wolfman issues of the new Teen Titans, which have been really good lately, but also he packs a lot of comic into those comics. Indeed. Uh, Yeah, it was really brief, but really fun. There was a ton to enjoy. Luke Cage. Luke Cage. I fucking love Luke Cage. Maybe my favorite superhero. I have every issue of his series from when it went from Luke Cage Hero for Hire to Power Man to Power Man and Iron Fist. Interesting stuff. Indeed. Yeah, I was, a as a kid, a pretty big fan of Power Man and Iron Fist. I thought they were pretty badass. Yeah, I think I have some of your old issues of that that I'm keeping. That's okay. Thank you. I do have one qualm. Oh, I have several. What qualms do you have? My one qualm is the cover totally misrepresents what happens with the Hulk unless it is foreshadowing of future issues. Yeah, I know what you mean. They have the Hulk on the cover. It looks like he is in a catatonic state and that you don't know whether he's going to side with Luke Cage or Nighthawk and Doctor Strange in some kind of a battle. And nothing like that happens inside. When Luke Cage is fighting the Defenders, the very, very diminished roster of the Defenders, the Hulk is nowhere to be found. Nope. So, yes, a little bit confusing. Because Hulk has, uh, in the middle of this issue, quit the Defenders. Again. Mm -hmm. He's not the only person to quit the Defenders, though. Nope. Val finally makes good on her threat to go off on her sojourn of self-discovery. Yep. What did you think of that? I don't really know how she's going to go about it. This well, is pre, pre-internet. Pre I mean, I know people did things pre-internet. Did they? There was private detectives, oh. as we've discussed before, mm-hmm. and other things like that. So maybe she's going to go do some private detectiving to learn about the past of the body which she is inhabiting. That would make sense. Maybe mm-hmm. get some kind of a Seamus on the case. Yeah, a Gunsel. <laughs> oh, well... You know, up to her. She's her own woman. She gets to make her own decisions on that. Yep. Unless she's saying goodbye to fucking Nighthawk. Oh, I'm so fucking pissed at Kyle. He's such a dick in this issue. Mm. And it starts off him being kind of a fun dick. Mm. Like being like, I can ride any horse. And then just being like, oh no, I can't (laughs) ride this flying horse. I suck at it. Oh shit. Yep. But being kind of like abashed afterwards and just be like, well, that hurt my pride. And it's like, oh, okay. This is kind of fun. And then... When Val says goodbye to the Defenders, she kisses each of them on the cheek. And after she kisses Nighthawk on the cheek, uh, she says, I don't know you very well, but you seem like a nice and generous man. She kisses him on the cheek, and then he just grabs her and says, no, this is how we kiss. And he basically sticks his tongue down her throat. Gross. Super gross, and she doesn't really say anything to it, which doesn't seem like the Val that we have gotten to know in this comic book. Mm -hmm. And... It was a gross scene, and it really annoyed me. There's a lot about Nighthawk in this issue that kind of pissed me off. Kind of reeks of old Hawkeye. Yeah, well, and we find out later in the issue he's basically a Calvinist. He has this little speech about how 
I never, I know I should be more interested in business, seeing as how I'm super rich and everything, but I feel that every man's destiny is pre-written before his birth. Oh, right. It's like, his calling, dude. His calling is to be a hero. Yeah. Or a villain, but probably but, a hero. Maybe. But definitely a dick. Sorry, guys. But, yeah, fucking, fucking uh, Calvinism. I hate that shit. And, yeah, weird how it's always rich people that espouse that stuff. Mm. It was one of many things that bothered me. So I got some just general Luke Cage thoughts. Okay. <laughs> and I think that you do too. We've discussed some of them earlier. So as I said, he's one of my favorite characters. I'm stoked we finally get to see him. This is the first we've seen him written by Len Wein, who overall, I like it. It's goofy as hell. <laughs> and his dialogue is so weird. But dialogue aside, here's what I like about the character. Mm -hmm. I like that he's the first black character to get his own comic book. I think that's rad. He had it for a little while now at this point. And overall, it's a pretty good comic book. I like the fact that he is a hero for hire. There's a thing that comes up in comic books and comes up when people are discussing college sports that really bothers me, which I call that it's the classism inherent in the perceived nobility of amateurism. So the idea that not taking money for services rendered is somehow inherently more noble. And it's bullshit, and it leads to this really elitism concept where you have every superhero is a fucking billionaire. Mm. There's nothing wrong with him being paid for work that he is doing. It doesn't diminish the value of the work that he is doing, or that he's doing good work that should be rewarded, like both in terms of accolades and... Yeah, he should be monetarily co uh, compensated for it because not everybody can be a billionaire and afford to have volunteering be their full-time job uh, because being a superhero is generally a full-time job. And it, like I said, it's the same thing with like college athletics. There's this whole, oh, uh, these kids shouldn't get paid because that diminishes what they're doing and makes it somehow cheapens what they are doing. It's not for the love of the game. Not everybody can afford to give away all of their work. And it comes up in art, too. And that's one of the things I like about Luke Cage and that I didn't like about the Luke Cage series was they had him turn down money for doing this work. Mm -hmm. And I don't I don't like that. And the main thing that I really like about Luke Cage is one time he borrowed the Fantastic Four's Fantastic Car, flew it to Latveria because Dr. Doom owed him $200. I remember, this has come up before. It's so good. I think it's in issue 12. But it's just like my favorite thing ever. He's like, no, Dr. Doom, this is a point of pride. Dr. Doom owes me $200. I am flying to Latveria, breaking in his castle, and making him pay me that $200 that he owes me. And it was awesome. So yeah, like I said, I love Luke Cage. The problems that we get with Luke Cage is that he is written almost exclusively at this time. Well, at this time exclusively by white writers who do not know how to write dialogue for the kind of black characters, at least, that they are trying to write for. We see it, like, with Bob Haney trying to write for teenagers. Mm -hmm. It's pretty equivalent to that. Mm -hmm. I feel what happened in this issue was Len Wein maybe asked the other white writers in the Marvel bullpen, so how do I write this Luke Cage dialogue? And they told him, uh, just rent some exploitation movies and take out all of the swear words. The problem I think that maybe Len Wein came up against here is he maybe rented Pam Greer movies instead of Richard Roundtree movies. <laughs> because he calls the, everybody sugar. It's really disconcerting <laughs> that Luke Cage calls everybody sugar in this. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah, that is the most menacing sugar I have heard. It's 
it's delightful. Like, I love it. And it made me kind of chuckle every time I read it. Yeah. It was the other thing that he calls <laughs> Doctor Strange, which I love, is Mr. Mustache, mm-hmm. which is a great thing to call Doctor Strange. But like I said, I think in general, there just weren't any black writers at Marvel. I, I think the first one they hired was Jim Owsley, and that wasn't until like the early 80s. In DC, I think they hired Samuel Delaney to write a couple of issues of Wonder Woman, but then they terminated that pretty quickly. Other than that, I think it took them a very long time to hire any black writers. What's kind of cool is Jim Owsley is still working. He changed his name to Christopher Priest and is still writing. He's writing Deathstroke right now for DC, and it's actually really good. Hmm. But I feel like they were hamstrung in a couple of ways. First of all, just trying to write a street-tough black character not having any experience of that. You're going to be hamstrung creatively anyway. But in addition to that, I think a tool that a lot of writers lean on for that is, well, I'll throw in a lot of expletives. Mm-hmm. And they can't do that because it's a comic book. Mm-hmm. And also, he's a hero, which means that at that time, at least, you can't even imply that he's swearing a lot. So you can't use the little asterisks and stuff. Mm-hmm. So they give him just weird phrases to say that are like, oh, that sounds like it might be a swear. Maybe is this, I don't know, is this what black people say? Do they mm-hmm. say sweet Christmas all the time? <laughs> Probably. I love it when he says sweet Christmas, uh-huh. but is goofy as hell. It is. I, I like that they have Luke Cage on the show, the modern show, say sweet Christmas. I do too. Yeah, I, I have a lot of issues with that show. I want it to do well. I will say that it is uh, very well cast. It is beautifully shot. I think all of the performances are very good, and I love the soundtrack. And God, I wish the writing was better. Mm. Because uh, I really want the show to do well, because I want more shows like it. But, and I know a lot of people really seem to like it, and, you know, good for you. But I have a lot of issues with the writing on that show. His dialogue's a little better than Power Man's dialogue here. Is it? <laughs> a little, I said. Maybe a little bit. Not a ton. They've got him, like, preaching respectability politics at one point, which I'm just like, ooh. Like I said, they have him, like turning down money, saying it's somehow ignoble to accept money for providing services. There's this whole scene where he just just gives a list of books that he has read. It's like the kind of character building they are trying to do in it is just like, it's like, okay, so in this next two sentences, quote, seven books by influential black authors. Mm. And it's like, okay, maybe you could spread that out or imply it. Or we see the stack of books at one time. He doesn't need to also say it all. And it, yeah, I don't know. But we're here to talk about this Defenders comic book. Okay. Got off on a little bit of a tangent, which maybe sometimes happens when I talk about Luke Cage, because I have a lot of thoughts about him. Indeed you do. We talked about Val quitting the team a little bit. Mm-hmm. I feel like she's a real defender now that she's quit the team. It's official. I think that's one of the steps that you have to take. Mm-hmm. And I think that probably, like, if she runs into the aforementioned asshole Hawkeye or the Silver Surfer, they'll be like, hey, Val, good, you know, you really got your stripes. You quit the team. And I think that Namor will, like, congratulate her, but she'll be like, everyone else was very congratulatory and felt like I was a real defender now. I wonder why Namor felt like he was holding something back. I think the second time she quits the team... Then that's when she's going to get her praise oh. from Namor. And he's going to be like, oh, okay. When uh, when mom wrote her first book, mm-hmm. she talked about how everybody was very congratulatory of her. But her, her mentor, Donald Graves, was still very 
very polite and very congratulatory of her. But when she wrote her second book, he made a much bigger deal out of it. Mm. And she's like, well, I'm confused by this. And he was like, well, everybody's got one book in them. But once you've written two books, you're a writer. Oh. So I feel like everybody can quit the Defenders once. Mm -hmm. But once you've quit the team two times, you're a real Defender, Val. And I think, like, Namor will probably send her a bouquet of expensive seaweed. No, because he's quit every time he's done a mission. Yep, pretty much. Pretty much. And the Hulk, I think there's a grudging respect and maybe even a little rivalry Mm. between them on who can quit the team more. Ah, send her some artisan sea salt. But as Val leaves, Doctor Strange turns Dragonfang invisible for her. Mm-hmm. So it'll be easier for her to travel incognito. Mm-hmm. That's got to be tricky. Because she says that even she can't see the sword. But she can feel its weight there and she knows that it's there. Having a fully invisible sword that even you can't see, that's got to be really fucking tricky and dangerous. Maybe when you unsheath it, the blade is visible. Maybe. But just to her or just visible in general? In general. Maybe that's one of the twists that he mentions. Yeah, he mentions he put some twists on Dragonfang that she would be happy to see. And I get the sense that he would have kind of liked to explain them to her. But she's just like, okay, thanks, gotta go. Mm -hmm. Like, I understand wanting to be not in Mr. Mustache's presence any longer. Mm -hmm. But maybe stick around and find out what spells he put on your now invisible magic sword. Because that seems dangerous. And like, it would be useful to know. And, like, maybe also something you might be a little bit curious about. It does seem that way. What do you think the twists Doctor Strange put on her sword are? I was thinking when she gets into that limousine, it's going to be uncomfortable to sit with the sword at your hip. Okay. And so maybe it gets... um, Nerf? Yeah, just floppy. It becomes floppy when (laughs) it's it's not in use. So weapon flaccidity is the main. It's not a bug, it's a feature. It probably sounds better when Agamotto does it, but yeah, that's the idea. The flaccidity of Faldon. (laughs) It's a spell that happens to everyone occasionally, Clea. I was a little bit disappointed. We talked a little bit about how much I like it when Luke Cage calls Doctor Strange Mr. Mustache. Mm. I think that's a great nickname for him. I was a little bit disappointed that Doctor Strange's response wasn't, that's Doctor Mustache to you. Mm, Yeah, that wouldn't really be his. You don't think he wants to be called a doctor all the time? I bet he corrects family members on not calling him doctor. No, I'm just saying that that's a type of sense of humor that he doesn't really have. Oh, I was picturing him saying it absolutely humorlessly. (laughs) Anytime the word Mr. gets ascribed to him, I totally see him as being, I didn't spend eight years in medical school to be called Mr. Mustache. Mm -hmm. Dr. Mustache. But Dr. Mustache is a pretty good nickname. Pretty good. I think maybe even a better nickname. Than Mr. Mustache. Or Steve. Yeah. We get to see that one of the things that Nighthawk has done is... I don't know if it's a power move or not that he's just kind of bought a new headquarters for the Defenders and decided that they're going to be set up there. He says he's like, oh, I thought it would be nice if we could get everybody out of Doctor Strange's hair. So I built this whole spiffy new headquarters here. Well, he already had built the Pegasus Training Center. Well, he had bought the Pegasus Training Center. And, And that's where he built the fort. Right. The fort. Yeah, he built the special fort. It's a very fancy buddies. fort, but it's, it's a very fort. fancy fort. One of the things that we see that he has purchased, which is 
unbelievable overkill and made me like I was like okay that's kind of a charming touch but also I am furious at him for how much money he is spending right now oh the chair a hulk sized chair that is made out of solid adamantium and why too yeah the hulk can sit in a regular chair he sits on chairs all the time it would be so much cheaper to just have 10 easy chairs that you're holding in reserve or fucking steel it's not going to be comfortable for him either Mm -hmm. It boggles the mind. Adamantium is so crazy rare and expensive in the Marvel Universe. Do you know how many beans that could have bought the Hulk? So many. Many. Many beans. Mm -hmm. And the Hulk loves beans. Hulk does love beans. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's what they need to lure him back to soothe his heartache. Just a Hansel and Gretel style (laughs) trail of beans beans. back to the... Back to the fort. Back, yeah, nice. Mm. Back to the sanctum sanctimonious... (laughs) Well, no, the to uh, Nighthawk's Fort. Yeah, I know. I just came up with the name Sanctum Sanctimonious. That's pretty that, good. That was a pretty good thing. That's to, pretty good. I hope we still get to see the Sanctum Sanctorum, because I want to start calling it that. Yep, I think that's fair. I bet it'll come up. I, I would imagine so. The other fancy step that Nighthawk has taken is Kyle went ahead and hired your dad to install the media center, <laughs> it looks like. Turn on the TV. It's the fifth button from the left. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For those listening at home, my stepdad, Corey's dad, Jim, has helped me set up my media center, and it is very good, but it is a labyrinth of different remote controls that are required to do anything, and it takes me like a month to figure out how to use any of the things. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is what is going on in Kyle's headquarters. Well, I think, much much like... My dad, people that learned media stuff in the 70s, that's how it worked back then. Yep, you just gotta wire these things through these other things. It was all really complicated. have to do these five steps in this order, and then it's the best. Yep, I just kind of stuck. Yep. (laughs) This isn't totally related to anything else, but there's a TV reporter who, his appearance led me to believe that in the Marvel Universe, Captain Kangaroo decided to be an investigative journalist instead of a children's television host. Oh my god, you're totally right. Also, he reminded me of somebody else who's very different from Captain Kangaroo, which is in the last scene where he's like totally shocked. Where he gets the Salbucema instant flop sweat. Yeah, and uh, he reminded me of uh, Salvador Dali. His, his mustache was much less elaborate. Yeah, but his eyebrows were very much <laughs> okay. If you had the Dolly eyebrows, I really did. I'll give you that. It's I'm gonna take a look at this. Kind of a... <laughs> no. Okay, I can see that. So we got Captain <laughs> Kangaroo transforms into a surprise Dolly. Oh boy, I would love to have them be on a super team together. Mm. <laughs> they would hate each other so much. Oh my god. <laughs> I want Salvador Dali to be on all of my super teams just because everybody would hate him so much. It would be wonderful. It really would. So we all know how good I am at accents. Oh, yes. So I'm not going to do it. But getting back to Power Man's dialogue, the way that they tried to do it kind of is English by chopping the ends of words off, but in ways that people don't usually speak. It reminded me a lot of like like a Jamaican or... Like a patois? Yeah. Yeah, you pointed that out to me, and it is impossible for me to not read it that way now, Mm -hmm. which is frustrating, because I really don't want to. (laughs) But when words get shortened to T apostrophe, Mm -hmm. it's tough not to once you brought that up. 
and like all the D's drop off the ends of the ands, and uh, there's a few other examples there that. that oh God, that yeah, there. dropping the T off the end of don't. Oh God, it, and just seeing that, I'm reading all of the Luke Cage dialogue again, and they're so bad at making him talk like a tough, street smart character. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of like when in cartoons, they clearly want to make a character a drunk, or like a party guy. But they're like, well, it's a cartoon, so we can't have him drink any alcohol. So they just make him, like, eat messily all the time. <laughs> I think that's a trope that comes up in a lot of cartoons. Mm. The one I'm thinking of right now is Exo Squad. There's a character named Wolf Bronski, who I'm like, clearly he is always supposed to be drinking beers and a little bit drunk. Mm-hmm. But instead, they always just have, like, him eating a sandwich that he spills on himself. Mm. Or drinking a soda and then burping. But I'm like, yeah, he's supposed to be a drunk. I could tell. Mm. And there's a lot of characters like that in cartoons. Mm. But I feel like it's the same thing. It's like, well, we we don't know what how to portray him the way we want to portray him. Does this get the general point across? Mm. Like, I don't know how to abbreviate things. I don't know how to, how to phonetically spell out this accent. And so, yeah, you end up with a Jamaican patois. There you go. And him calling everybody sugar. <laughs> Which, I gotta say, tickles me. The other thing that it reminded me of was, have you ever read the novelization of the movie Ghostbusters? I have not. Oh, you're missing out. Am I? No. Okay. But there is a, you know the line from Ghostbusters where Ernie Hudson's character says to the mayor, since I've been hanging out with these guys, I have seen shit that would turn you white. Mm -hmm. What they changed that to in the book was... I have seen jazz that would boggle your mind. <laughs> oh, no. Doesn't that seem like dialogue they would give to Luke Cage? It does. Yeah. Yep. It's been a very long time since I've read that. I wonder if they had Bob Haney right <laughs> 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 I think he was probably still alive in 84. That's funny. Ghostbusters. I didn't realize that got novel. I did read a lot of... Novelizations. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite? Ooh, probably Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Ooh, do you remember who wrote that? Oh, of course not. I know a lot of them were written by Craig Shaw Gardner. Mm. My favorite was the novelization of Total Recall. That was written by Piers Anthony. Really? <laughs> Which is weird because Total Recall is based on a Philip K. Dick. That's what I was going to say. I, I, book, but yeah. it was just like, well, people don't want to read that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, yeah, this like third step of extrapolation. It was terrible, Whoa. but uh, I liked it. Wow. No, the Aliens ones were were pretty good. Those were by uh, Alan... Dean Foster. Yeah. Rambo books were pretty awful, but I liked them because oh, I was a kid. Boy. Dude. Do you remember that they had a Rambo cartoon? What? Yeah, there was a, a Saturday morning action-adventure Rambo cartoon. How do that you, is the most fucked up thing how ever. Do make, how do you make that appropriate? I, you, I don't think you do. I was like, wait, so is he still a Vietnam vet who went into the forest and had flashbacks and killed a bunch of cops? Hmm. Apparently. But he's also a great American hero. Oh, boy. Yeah. Anyway... You're ready to get into the minutiae? Why not? (laughs) Fair enough. I'd read this comic. We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts. We got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, what do you want to start with? Sound effects. All right. What was your favorite sound effect? There were a lot in this. There were a lot. I think the only one that I can't recall having seen before Mm -hmm. is Runch. 
Runch is nice. Where was that? That's on page 22, and that's the sound it makes when Power Man gets his back smashed into a wall of a building. Pretty good. I liked that. It's pretty basic, but on page 14, it's after one of my favorite panels, which we will discuss soon, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. But it is Doctor Strange and Nighthawk getting slammed into a wall by Power Man. They're stacked up on top of each other. Nighthawk goes slam with two M's. Mr. Mustache goes wham with two M's. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that. The old slam wham. Slam wham. Mm -hmm. I also really liked when Captain Kangaroo is doing his news report. Over the space of three panels, we see a building getting destroyed, and it makes the noise rumble, but each letter is triple repeated. Right. So it's three R's, three U's, etc., and the noise is a continuous loop that goes over three panels. I like how that is used to convey how long it is taking for it to happen and how kind of big the sound is. Indeed. And I think scrump is a funny noise. So I put that on there too. You had a scrump as well? I had a scrump as well. Scrump is fun. Scrump is fun. I like it. Why not? Yeah, that's page. And a 23. Yeah, that's what I had too. 23 scrump. Yeah, scrump is Luke Cage. Hitting Nighthawk over the head with a ceiling. Ah. I think that may be part of why I enjoyed it so much as well. That's a good scrump. That's a good scrump. What do you want to hit next? Let's hit up the words. Okay, man, there's a lot to choose from. There is, and you're not going to like this, but I kind of copped out a little bit where I did have one bit of specific dialogue, and then in addition to that I said all all of Power Man's dialogue. Corey? Yeah. I had the same thing, and I suspect we had the same specific dialogue as well. Is it the Doctor Strange proverb? Yes, it is. (laughs) Okay, why don't you read the Doctor Strange proverb, and then let's just go through and talk about some of Luke Cage. I'll I'll do my best to read Luke Cage's dialogue without a Jamaican patois. All right. On page 10, we have after uh, Nighthawk's frustrated, and he kicks the adamantium chair, and it hurts his foot real bad. Fucking idiot. Yeah, and Doctor Strange... Kind of rubs his chin and arches his eyebrow and says, Nighthawk, it is written that the pain of impulse is parent to the pleasure of impatience. You might do well to remember that before you assault a chair. <laughs> so good. That's the that's the Mr. Mustache I love. Yep. So good. Yep, that's at his, his top of his game. And then we have, I'm just going to do a sampling of the Luke Cage dialogue that we have. So Doctor Strange says that despite the fact that they snuck into the building at night wearing costumes and in one case a mask, that they're here to protect the structure as well. Luke Cage, understandably, doesn't believe them. Mm-hmm. And he says, Sure you are, Joker, and I'm Simon Legree's grandma. In other words, baby, I believe that as soon as you can tell me when good guys started sneaking into places through the roof. And one other thing, Mr. Mustache... I ain't your friend. See, that sounds like it could have come from Three the Hard Way or something. Sure, yeah. Rather than Friday Foster or coffee. But he follows that up by saying, Uh-uh, sugar. <laughs> something tells me I let them fireworks touch me and I'll be learning about sincerity from inside a plain pine box. Doctor Strange does a spell where he calls upon the uh, ruby rings of Ragador. And Luke Cage responds by saying, Joker, you can call me Ruby Begonia if you want, but seeing as how what you did to that girder you was planning to do to me, I don't think all the king's horses (laughs) and all the king's men gonna put Mr. Mustache together again. 
that was one jive move, taking out a dude when he was off guard like that. Nighthawk punches him and says he's going to blacken both of his eyes. And Luke Cage responds by saying, too late, Joker. My eyes came black like the rest of me. That totally sounds like a Jim Kelly through the hard way line. Mm -hmm. Okay, Joker, that ties it. I've been going easy with you. Thought I'd try to take you in one piece. But now, sugar, I'm just going to take you apart. Well, ain't that just 28 kinds of too bad? Because, Joker, I'm still planning to mop the floor with you. Baby, you don't put me down. I'm gonna... Okay, sugar, if that's the way you want it, that's the way you're gonna get it. Sweet sister, what in the name of... Blasted Bubble appeared out of nowhere. I'm sorry, I'm just reading all of his dialogue now because <laughs> it's all bonkers. Yep, pretty good. Yeah, all right. It's an accord. Agreed. Just this once. In general, we don't get to do the all of this guy's dialogue, but man. And that includes he's going to be in the next issue. So next time we will have to choose one. Fine. Okay. But I think maybe my favorite, though, is Doctor Strange's proverb instead. Yeah, it's really funny. It's pretty close. The Mr. Mustache talk. Mm -hmm. Pretty great. What you want to hit next? Sugar? Uh, oh, <laughs> let's talk clothes. Okay, you got it, baby. What clothes do you want to talk about? Sweet Christmas. Val's getup. Val's got a nice getup. Mm -hmm. Wearing a nice uh, wide-legged striped pants. Mm -hmm. Like a little bit bell-bottomy, but I think just more straight-legged. And a weird low-cut like blouse vest. Come to think thing. of it, it's almost like Power Man's shirt. It is it's, a little it's bit. open almost all the way to the navel. It is. And yeah, you can tell that Val is not wearing a bra. Mm -hmm. She looks very dapper. She also. really does. She looks She looks great. She looks very well-dressed, very stylish. She's mm -hmm. also wearing a choker, I believe. And, and yeah. a sword. And a sword at first. But then, I mean, she's still wearing it. But yeah. it has many sorceress twists. But yeah, puffy-sleeved shirt that is uh, unbuttoned to her navel. It's a very stylish look. Boots with big heels. Mm-hmm. Good for her. She looks nice. Yeah. Uh, other fashion things I wanted to touch on, at least briefly. There's a scene in which we see the either cops or security guards that are... Umpires. Did you write that too? No, but that's what they look like. Yeah, I wrote umpire cops. Mm -hmm. And I was very confused by it. Yeah. I don't know if I fabricated the memory based on seeing the comic that those chest protector things they wear are orange or not. In real life? Yeah. I have no idea, mm. but it looked goofy. Yep. I know umpires look like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was like, oh, okay. I guess they hired a bunch of umpires and gave them guns and told them to protect that building. Go protect that there building. Maybe they were on strike right then. Mm. I'm just like, well, you know, works work. Yeah. The other sartorial choice I wanted to at least briefly touch on is one member of the Wrecking Crew. Mm -hmm. Not the backup musicians. <laughs> right. But the super villains. It's a guy named Bulldozer. Who looks exactly like Ram Man from Masters of the Universe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of weirded me out. He looks exactly like Ram Man, but with a ton of chest hair. Yeah, it's weird for each chest just hair in like, the middle. Yeah, like a silver juggernaut almost costume where the, the head and neck and shoulders are all metaled up. Mm -hmm. And then no shirt under that. And then pants with a bunch of chest hair. It's very uncomfortable. It really does. But it also looked like Ram Man. And mm -hmm. so I was like, oh, well, how about that? Other than that, I kind of like the uh, rest of the Wrecking Crew's getup. Mm -hmm. Simple, minimalist, classic. Yep. Big hands. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think that's a 
fashion choice. Uh, yeah, I know. It's a search just around <laughs> that way, though. Yeah, that's true. Well, and I think it's pile driver looks like he's taking a poop. Oh, yeah, he does. Yeah, just mm-hmm. like... Argh! Yeah, he's giving it the old... It's weird. Overall, the art is pretty consistent, but yeah, there's, once again, I think, a different inker than we're used to seeing. It's a guy named Danny Green, and mostly it looks pretty consistent with the art style that we've gotten used to, but on the last panel, the way the Wrecking Crew was drawn, it's way more stylized and kind of simplistic than we're used to seeing from Busem, and it kind of threw me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads us into favorite panel. What was your favorite panel? Oh, jeez. There's some really cool ones. Yeah, I have a lot written down, but I think I'm going to go with the one turn of phrase to describe a panel that I think I never have and probably never will get the opportunity to say again. Okay. Which is double foot upside down dick kick. <laughs> double foot upside down dick kick? Yeah. What page? <laughs> That's on page 22, and it's when uh, Power Man and Nighthawk are fighting. God! Double foot upside down dick kick. I don't know how else I would describe that. Yep. That is really fun. And <laughs> well, not for Power Man, but... No. Damn. Uh, he's got a uh, steel hard skin. Scrotum. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Okay. I'll be fine. Okay. Oh, that leads right into the runch, too. Yep. Dick kick to runch. Do you think a runch is another name for a grundle? <laughs> Seems like it might be. <laughs> I had a couple to choose from. There is a very sweet panel of the Hulk crying because Val is leaving. Mm -hmm. And that was really sweet, and I really liked that. Mm -hmm. And it is juxtaposed with a couple of panels later. Doctor Strange puts his hand on his shoulder and says, It'll be okay. And Hulk flips the fuck out, and we see that, like, sorrow turning to rage. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. But the sad Hulk, I think, was one of my favorites. But my absolute favorite, and I, I touched on a little bit earlier, is the double cape yank of Power mm-hmm. Man. Before we see, we see his silhouette earlier. And then, while well, he's still off panel, we see him grabbing the capes of Doctor Strange and Nighthawk and just tugging them and tossing them into the side of a wall. Mm-hmm. And it's awesome. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's on page 16. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it's the double cape yank, and it's what leads to the slam wham. But they just both look so goofy and so caught off guard and so undignified, Mm -hmm. which anytime you're showing a panel in which those two guys look super undignified, it's going to delight me. Especially after the way that Nighthawk has been behaving this issue. That's a good one. Who just had to be a sucker? Who acted not unlike the fat boys in Crush Groove and had to behave in a way that is counter to their previously established character in a way that furthered the plot. In this issue, uh, my sucker was Doctor Strange. Really? Yes. Because? Was it because he didn't correct Luke Cage and say, actually, it's Doctor Mustache? I didn't have that, but I'm adding it to the list <laughs> okay, of okay. supporting arguments. I had Doctor Strange because I thought that the way in which he handled Hulk's reaction to Valkyrie leaving was pretty un characteristically caring and insightful because he first tries to comfort the Hulk by, mm-hmm. by saying, hey, let me explain. It's, it's cool, it's, buddy. It's, it's all right, bud. And Hulk flips out and leaves and is like, stop talking. And he doesn't try and go after him and be like, no, I have to explain this to you <laughs> in great, you know, detail. He just lets him go. And then Nighthawk's like, whoa, like, what the fuck? And Doctor Strange 
gives Hulk a, a rare amount of, you know, kind of intellectual credibility where he says, like, he's going to go figure this out and he he'll, he understands in his own way. He just basically needs to process it. So let's give him the space to, to do that. Hmm. That's the way I read it. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And I think that's actually a pretty good choice. My choice was Val. Mm. Not the quitting the team thing, but the way that she reacted to Nighthawk, that is out of character for her. Yeah, she When sure he grabs and kisses her. And kind of honestly, the way she's been written by Len Wein in general has been much more vanilla than her previously established character under Engelhart. Hmm. She's a, a firebrand and is very defiant and very strong-willed and definitely has a mind of her own and is outspoken about her feminism. She really hasn't been behaving that way under Len Wein. She, she's been much more just pliant and just going along and just like, oh, my strange new friends. She's written as kind of just like a blank template, good guy, female superhero. Mm-hmm. And that's disappointing. But specifically when Nighthawk pulls that shit on her, Hawkeye did that before and she fucking punched him out. Mm-hmm. And then, like, thought to herself, like, ooh, but I kind of liked it, or whatever, mm-hmm. in a way that also annoyed me. Yeah. But with this, I mean, there's no way she would have just been like, oh, whatever, you guys, mm-hmm. always harassing me. Mm-hmm. That's not Val. Nope. And it, it was frustrating for me to see her written that way, and to see her, in general, under Ween's pen, be so unsure of herself. I understand there are story reasons for it, but I want to see a little more bluster out of her. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe she'll find that when she comes back from her journey. Maybe. Maybe. So, each issue of a Defenders comic has a best defender and a worst offender. Worst defender? One, two, three. Nighthawk. Yeah. Fuck that guy. <laughs> so frustrating. The arrogance of trying to ride the flying horse that no one else can ride. <laughs> that, was, that was his best work in this And that was book. the best thing. And it was all downhill from there. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and mostly for the Val thing, uh, but also just like series of mistakes, just bumbling through shit, going into the building that you own at night wearing a mask, Bad buying job. everybody a new headquarters without checking whether they want to move or not. Stubbing your toe on your own adamantium Hulk chair. <laughs> buying an adamantium Hulk chair, revealing to me that you're a Calvinist. Mm. That's a big mistake. Oh, yeah. I don't care for it. No. No. We're going to judge that guy now every time you see him. Yep. I was doing that anyway. I thought so. But I'm judging him accurately. Hmm. I'm using my judgment to judge. Very well. There were points where I was like, oh, Strange is doing a pretty bad job with a lot of stuff here too. But Strange has a few very redeeming moments in this. And yes, his treatment of the Hulk was one. I loved his proverb to Nighthawk. Yeah, I couldn't give him the nod on that. Uh, conversely, best defender... For some of the reasons you mentioned, but chiefly because he saved everybody's bacon by enveloping them in a safety bubble when mm. the building collapsed, I had to go with Mr. Sorry, Dr. Mustache himself. Ah, fair enough. He, as I said, he did a pretty good job with that. He admitted that he didn't know how to use the remote control, which must have been very difficult for him. <laughs> That's true. Um, um television? <laughs> but... There is no way in hell I wasn't going to not choose Luke Cage, Power Man, as my best defender. It did not occur to me that he there are eligible. situations in which we can bend the rules on this, but as soon as we got into the segment, I thought to myself, oh, of course I will choose Yeah, of Luke course. Cage. The only reason I'm able to is because at the very end of the issue, we see them standing together opposing 
the wrecking crew. Okay, that is going to So they're on the one side of it. and 50 Cory points. In this economy? Sorry, man. What are my Cory points redeemable for? I don't know, but I got a lot of them. <laughs> okay, fine. I think that's a valid choice. That's a good choice. Okay, well then it's not going to cost me any points. Well, no. Why would I be cost points for making a good choice? Because you have to bend the rules. It's not really bending the rules because at the, as I say, at the end, defender. He, he's standing. It's a non-team, and they are standing in opposition to the wrecking crew. Okay, so anybody standing. He's a hero too. He's a hero. Is eligible. Honestly, any hero appearing in the book is eligible. Okay, good to know. Yeah. Okay, I'm still keeping those Corey points, but... Fine. All right. Do you want to spend them to have me edit out that super racist thing you said earlier? Oh, shit, what did I say? Did I say something bad? No. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I was just going to imply that I had edited it out. Oh. <laughs> oh. Jeez. That's cold, man. Thank you. Uh. Um. <laughs> Make me all paranoid. Yeah, I just love Luke Cage, and so, yeah, of course I chose Luke Cage. He beat the crud out of Nighthawk. Yeah. No, no, it's a good choice. I'm and just... he called everybody sugar. Uh, I chuckled every panel in which he was speaking. Yeah. Baby works. I can see that being, like, more of a hipster thing. But su- sugar, no. Nope. Due to the largesse of our Patreon donors, we are continuing our segment. Long way to go and a short time to get there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Watch Old Bandit Run. Oh, boy. So, in 1974, November, mm-hmm. what do you think Wong was doing? Well, he had some well-earned time off. Oh, yes. Coming up. As you know, he's always hard at work preparing delicious food, keeping the sanctum sanctimonious secure, mm-hmm. as it were. Um, so anyway, he, he gets a call from his old buddy from grad school. Yeah. Don Johansson, who by this point in his career is as a illustrious archaeologist, physical anthropologist. Mm. And says, hey, we've got this really exciting dig going on in Ethiopia. And Wong, among his many, many scientific pursuits, is also a, an avid paleontologist mm. and cultural and physical anthropologist. Wow. Yeah. A lot of hats. Lots of hats. So he decides to take his, his week off and go to Ethiopia to join his pal Don at this dig. And it's during the course of this excavation that him and, and a bunch of other scientists uncover what is to date, I believe, the, the oldest example of uh, Australopithecus afarensis, one of uh, Lucy. Lucy. Yeah. yeah. Commonly known Lucy, one of our, our oldest ancestors that we have part of the fossil record for. Since he was on vacation, he was just kind of helping out. He didn't want to toot his horn, right, make a big right. deal about it. So it was, his name's not in there. But he's got a, a nice scrapbook that oh. he keeps. He's an original scrapbooker. Cool. And so he's got all kinds of great pictures of him and the rest of the guys mugging with Lucy. <laughs> all dusty. And... <laughs> I would love to see some of those pictures. Yeah, so would I. But mm. that's uh, that's what Juan was up to at the at the end of the month, November. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, some of the events that led him there... You said he needed a break, and boy, did he ever. Because one of Wong's duties is when a defender quits the team, he kind of has to figure out how long they're quit for and pack their stuff up and either keep it in reserve for when he figures they're going to come back or get rid of it Mm. and try to figure out a way to contact them and get them their shit back when they left it at the Sanctum Sanctimonious. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So, like, he's got a special storage unit that's set aside just filled with the Hulk's beans and comic books. But (laughs) when Hawkeye quit the team, he just fucking threw his old fucking creepy porn into a dumpster. Uh, Creepy porn and handmade arrows. Those are just going out with the trash the next fucking day because he knows that guy's not coming back. And if Mm -hmm. he does, he's just going to say, like, oh, uh, I don't know. must have been in another dimension. I I have no recollection of you ever having been part of this team. Mm -hmm. And so he had to pack up Val's stuff. Mm-hmm. But he figures Val might be coming back, so sure. he's just got it set aside for now. Conversely, enough time has passed that he has figured out that the Silver Surfer is probably not coming back pretty soon. So he's got this big pile of, like, Dr. Zog's cosmic sex wax <laughs> and just boxes of weird shit from Silver Surfer's shitty pre-Boaz anthropology. Mm-hmm. Which is probably what put him in the mind to be thinking of anthropology when his buddy sure. called and be like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll do some real good anthropology. Right. But so he's like, shit, well, I got to get in touch with the Silver Surfer, figure out how to get his shit back to him. So like myself, Wong has trouble keeping track of when the Silver Surfer is and isn't able to shatter the cosmic barrier that'll get him off of the earth. Mm-hmm. He thinks of him as being an interstellar guy, mm-hmm. uh, even though, you know, we know, obviously, that uh, the Silver Surfer was trapped on Earth until 1978, issue one, volume two of the Silver Surfer's own comic book. But Wong forgot, and he thinks of him as being a <laughs> cosmic guy. So he's like, well, shit, how am I going to get in touch with this guy? He's fucking out in the stars. Right. I know. Hmm. I got a buddy who's a scientist in Puerto Rico working on the Anacibo telescope, which can send interstellar radio messages to the M14 cluster. I bet Silver Surfer's hanging out there. Mm. So on November 16th, he went down to Puerto Rico Mm -hmm. and broadcast the first interstellar radio message, which was, Norin Rad, come pick up your shit. I've got two boxes of Dr. Zog's cosmic sex wax here. I can't just leave it here and I can't throw it out because it's probably radioactive with all the cosmicness. Mm. Come pick up your shit. That's a good message. Yeah, and that is what happened. A long way to go and a short time to get there. Mm. I go. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, dear listener, for bearing with us. And if you'd like to see us in person, we will be at the Rose City Comic Convention on Sunday, September 10th, appearing on a panel with Jay and Miles. So if you're going to be in town... Come see us then. I'm pretty sure I'm going to dress like a professor. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. I'm going to sit backwards in my chair so people know I'm having real talk. You're not going to face the audience? Oh, no, you're going to turn the chair around. Oh, yeah, although I like your idea, too. That'd be a real power move. (laughs) Like a real shoegaze band thing to do. A real dick move. Yeah, that, too. That'd be a real Dr. Mustache. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be a power dick move? (laughs) I think that might be something else. Anyway... (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, and hopefully we'll see you soon. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. I am on Twitter under the same handle, at ttwasteland underscore. We're on the internet. We're on uh, Stitcher, iTunes, if you feel like leaving us a positive review. I think that'd be a nice thing to do. Mm-hmm. And if you feel like giving us some money on Patreon, we've had another couple of donations come in, and I really appreciate that. You can donate us some money at patreon.com backslash ttwasteland. We'll see you later, sugar. <laughs> I got, I got no rejoinder. <laughs> so swears Dr. Mustache. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.
know it. 